Hi, I'm Stuart Barry. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws upon the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders, one topic at a time. Morocco is a country that has fascinated travellers for centuries, and just its name conjures up images of Kasbahs, Medinas and Trans-Saharan trade. It has been ruled by various empires and several imperial dynasties, all of which have left their individual marks on the country. The four major imperial cities of Fez, Marrakesh, Meknes and Rabat have unique and fascinating histories and architecture. Joining us today to explain these histories is Ben Churcher. Ben is an archaeologist who works both in the Near East as well as with Aboriginal archaeology in Australia. He has a strong personal interest in the history and archaeology of the Muslim world and holds the position of Field Director at the University of Sydney's Archaeological Excavations at Pella in Jordan and has participated in most seasons of excavation at the site since 1983. He holds a BA with honours from the University of Queensland and a Diploma of Education from the University of Sydney. Ben is a life member of the Near Eastern Archaeology Foundation at the University of Sydney and he currently sits on the board of the foundation. The common thread of his many travels has been his interest in global history and the interconnections between both historical periods and cultures. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. You're welcome, Stuart. Good to be here. Morocco has an amazingly exotic appeal. It's one of those destinations that fascinates travellers. What is it about Morocco that does that for people? I think there's lots of reasons, Stuart, but one of the main reasons is that Morocco is on literally on the doorstep of Europe. On a good day, you can see across the Straits of Gibraltar. So if you're on um, in Gibraltar, you could actually see the northern coastline of Morocco. And so it's featured very heavily, particularly in, in French art and, and literature, as that exotic but accessible location. And I think that's really flown through, you know, to today where it's it's kept that feeling of the exotic but as I said before, accessible, approachable. So names like Marrakesh, it immediately conjures up particular visions in people's minds, but it sort of also feels like you can get on the train and go to Marrakesh, unlike a lot of other more exotic locations further afield. What are the main cities? The, the main cities, of course, everyone's heard of Casablanca, but mostly because of the movie. And everyone goes to Casablanca and, and gets a little bit disappointed that they don't see Humphrey Bogart walking down the street. But I actually quite like um, Casablanca. And there's a lot of other smaller cities, but the main ones are what we call the imperial cities or the royal cities. And these are cities that were either founded right at the beginning of a particular dynasty's reign or have been used as capital cities by the various Islamic dynasties in Morocco. And so there, Marrakesh, as I've already mentioned, Fez, Meknes, which a lot of people wouldn't know, but it's the imperial city of the, the current Alawite uh, dynasty that, that still rules in Morocco today. And Rabat, again, not many people may have heard of Rabat, but it's got a, a very long and illustrious history, and it's the, the current capital of Morocco. But when you go to Rabat, there's uh, reminders from the Phoenicians on to the present day in Rabat. 
But all of those four cities, Fez, Marrakesh, Meknes and Rabat, have been the capital cities at one time or another during the Islamic period of Moroccan history. So the Moroccan history, when does that start? How does that fit in, for instance, with the development of these cities? All of the cities, most of what we see now is from the Islamic period. So that's in the 7th century CE. Islam very quickly spread out of um, Saudi Arabia and moved across the North African coast into an area that they referred to as the Maghreb, which is the, the far west. They came right across in those first expeditionary campaigns to right to the, the shores of the, of the Atlantic. Now, I've forgotten the gentleman's name, but the commander of the Islamic forces famously rode his horse into the Atlantic Ocean and said, you know, looking up to the sky, please bear witness, God, there's no more land for me to conquer in your name, or words to that effect. But they, of course, came across North Africa. And then in 711, very beginning of the 8th century, they crossed the Straits of Gibraltar into Spain. And that began the Moorish period in Spain, which persisted right up until the 15th century. Prior to that, though, we've got the usual players in the Mediterranean. So the first major group were the Phoenicians, who established a number of trading centres right along the North African coast, but also in Morocco, and even around the corner, if I can put it that way, on the Atlantic coast. Their main aim was trade, and in particular, the Tyrian purple the, the purple dye that was extracted from the murex shell, that they had these trading colonies established for the production of this uh, very valuable dye that was used for garments and so forth. In their wake, particularly after the fall of Carthage in the second century BCE, the Romans almost inherited North Africa once they had defeated the Phoenicians in Carthage. And so they established provinces along the North African coast. In Morocco, it really was a bit of a backwater to the, the Roman world. It was certainly controlled by the Romans, but they really only paid attention to the coastline because that's what they were interested in, the, the trade and the resources that they could get from the coast. And then they allowed the native Berber people to essentially continue life as they always had in the interior. And so you had this interesting uh, sort of arrangement, it wasn't anything formal, but an arrangement nonetheless, where the Berbers of the interior would supply the goods that the Romans wanted, things you know that we um, associate with Africa, the skins, the exotic animals for the, you know, the gladiatorial games back in Rome and elsewhere slaves too, of course, a big commodity in the ancient world. But also the, the Romans uh, picked up where the Phoenicians left off and continued the production of uh, Tyrian purple, the, the expensive dye. And they also produced a, a lot of fermented fish paste, which sounds absolutely disgusting in these port cities. So they acted as a, a bit of a, a sort of a trading entrepot on the coast, bringing in the resources from the African continent and then shipping that back through the Mediterranean. 
As the Romans waned, it sort of devolves back to local kingdoms uh, controlling that part of the world. Justinian, the, the famous Byzantine emperor, tries to re-establish control along the North African coast, but it really doesn't survive past his lifetime until eventually the um, Islamic forces appear on the scene. So there's, like everywhere, a long history preceding, you know, when these cities were founded. But often the cities have their antecedents going back to these earlier periods. But most of what we see is Islamic. Is there any evidence still that you can see today of the Phoenician or the Roman occupation? Yeah, not so much Phoenician. Roman were a little bit uh, better served. There's two classic places. One is just, well, it's within the city bounds of Rabat. It's a, a district called Cella, which was where the Romans had one of their trading colonies and the ubiquitous forum and, you know, a few torsos of statues and broken columns and that can be seen there. And that actually overlies uh, where the Phoenicians had their trading settlement, but the good old Romans being such good builders have obliterated most of the Phoenician stuff to build their own city on top. But really the, the premier archaeological site in Morocco is Volubilis, which is on the coastal plain, so it's not right on the coast. It's just up the road from Meknes and, and, you know, fairly accessible from Fez as well. But this was the capital of the the province of Tingitania, which was uh, the Roman province in that, you know, at that time. And that's got your classic colonnaded street, beautiful mosaic work. It's really renowned for its uh, beautiful mosaics, triumphal arch, everything that you would associate with a Roman city can be found at, at Volubilis. And it's it's in a, a really beautiful spot overlooking very rich agricultural fields, that literal coast along the north of Africa for grain and things like that. It's very productive. And so the ancient inhabitants of Volubilis would have been the local people in the majority, of course, but uh, they would have drawn wealth both from the, that agricultural land plus that trade in African goods that I was talking about before. You mentioned the Islamic period was greatly influenced by the Almoravid kingdom. Who are the Almoravids? Okay, so just in a nutshell, it gets a little bit confusing. There's six main dynasties in uh, Moroccan history in the Islamic period. The first dynasty is the Idrisid dynasty, takes its name from the founder of the the dynasty, uh, Moulay Idris. Now, he was an interesting character. He was of descent from the Prophet Muhammad, but he was caught up in all of the early politicking that went on in the early Islamic world back in Iraq and fell on the wrong side of the Abbasid Caliph back there in Iraq, forcing him to flee. There was well-established networks through North Africa, through the great religious centre of Karawan in present-day Tunisia, and he sort of pushed as the agents of the Abbasids were literally chasing him down, he kept heading westward and ended up in Volubilis. And there, the local people, it had been, you know, the, the 
the area had sort of basically been um, under Christianity for a number of centuries, but it was a fairly loose adherence to Christianity and there would have been local religions still surviving. But when he got to Volubilis, because of his connections to the, the prophet's family, he was looked upon as a teacher and was welcomed into the, into the city and he started to slowly convert the, the local people to Islam he ended up leaving Volubilis because it was too pagan for him, too many associations with the past. First of all, moved to a small village just outside of Volubilis, and eventually he and his son started the construction of Fez as the first great Islamic city in Morocco. Now, the Idrisids continued through until the 10th century, until in the middle of the 11th century, the Almoravid dynasty comes and sweeps the Idrisids from power. Now, the Almoravids, to my mind, fascinating. They, they're a Berber group, but they don't really originate from what we regard as Morocco itself now. They originate further south along the coast, Mauritania, in the present-day Mauritania, or in the disputed Western Saharan region. So they had links both to the south of them, down into West Africa proper, as well as up into the north towards Morocco. And they were a, a very strongly influenced by religion and swept out of the south and sort of started to bring Morocco itself under their control. So they were short-lived. They were really only in power for about 100 years, but they are seen as one of the first big unifying dynasties. But more importantly, they were able to consolidate and hold the Moorish possessions in Spain, because at this point, the, the Christian armies from the north were starting to constantly exert pressure on the Moorish holdings in Spain. And the Almoravids, driven with a bit of religious fervour, were able to hold the line against the Christian armies. And so they're remembered for those things. But their real thing that they're really most remembered for is the founding of Marrakesh you know, arguably one of the more important Moroccan cities. When we go to Marrakesh, we have to remember the Almoravids. When we look at the walls around the old centre of Marrakesh, they date to the Almoravid period, giving Marrakesh its name, the red Marrakesh, you know, from the adobe walls, which when you see them at sunset, definitely have a reddish glow to them. The Almoravids were a very interesting group, but short-lived but influential. With this consolidation of the Western Sahara, was this the start of the trans-Saharan trade between Morocco and the sub-Saharan Africa? It's really fascinating. It, it became one of the real high points of the trans-Saharan trade, but it had been going on for a long period prior to this. As you know, you know the, the Saharan desert is, has really only been desert from about 6,000 BC. Prior to that, it was sort of open savanna, and there's plenty of evidence for that, not the least being numerous rock art depictions of people hunting giraffe and all sorts of animals that are now only found south of the Sahara. But as things dried out, that sort of connection across it continued with the control of the Almoravids and their experience, um, they even went south and conquered the kingdom of Ghana, 
which is different to the modern day Ghana. This was a, an ancient kingdom in West Africa itself, sort of around where Senegal and Western Mali is today. They really sort of bought that trade under their control. And it was a sort of a fascinating trade from sort of entrepots in the south of Morocco, the most famous of which is Sigila Massa. Now, you can go to Sigila Massa now, and really it's just a vast ruin field. There is a little um, modern town near it, but essentially that has all passed. But from places like Sigila Massa, people would pick up, if I can say, Western manufactured goods, European manufactured goods, and start the process. And it was like a huge circle. They would take those goods to the middle of the Sahara Desert, where there were these salt mines. I've never actually been there, but they look like hell on earth. The salt is rock salt. And so slaves would, in I can only assume, unbearable circumstances, would hack these slabs of salt out of the, out of the earth. Through their middlemen, of course, they would then trade the European goods that they'd bought down from Sigil Massa for the salt, load up their camels with these slabs of salt and keep heading south. Eventually, you cross the Sahara Desert and you get to the Sahil, or which is the Arabic word for shore, the, the, the shore of the, the Saharan Desert. And there you had the great trading centres of the south, Timbuktu, Janee, Gao. And there they would trade the salt for gold, almost in equal measure. Now, it always baffles you know, why, you know, people would pay so much for salt. But where, where it was most needed was a little bit further south in the more equatorial regions of West Africa. So lots of sweating, you need lots of salt to supplement your diet. And so this is where trade just has a way of finding its equilibrium. There was plenty of salt in the north, but not much gold. In the south, there was plenty of gold, but not much salt. So a trade was set up. So with the gold, back they go, up to Sigil Massa, buy more European goods, back down to buy salt, and it kept going on and on. Now, it kept going until the 17th century when the Great Age of Expansion happened and the Portuguese principally established trading networks around the coast and they basically circumvented what was a very arduous trade network and sort of monopolised all of that trade into their own hands through these coastal trading ports. And that really saw the end of it. However, I have been lucky enough to go to Mali and I've been to Janee and Timbuktu and you can still find this rock salt for sale in the markets there. And every now and again, it mostly comes in on four-wheel drives and stuff nowadays, of course. But every now and again, there is the, you know, nostalgic camel caravan that brings in this rock salt to places like Timbuktu for sale. But I gather it's not being traded for equal measure with gold today. I don't think so, or else I'm going to load up my pockets with salt <laughs> next time I go. <laughs> Indeed. So what happened to the Almoravids if they're only a short-run kingdom? Yeah, what, what you have, like in most parts of the world, is a, a quick sort of, well, when I say quick, in historical terms, you know, a, a turnover from one dynasty to another. So 
Following the Almoravids were the Almohads, all sounding fairly similar, I know, but they were, again, a very important dynasty. They, again, didn't last that long. They were founded in 1112, and they were out of power just a little bit over 100 years later in 1248. And basically, the end of their dynasty came when they lost to the Christians up in Spain and uh, couldn't ever really recover from that. But why they're important for Morocco is a lot of the the monuments that, well, not a lot, but many of the monuments that we see when we go to Morocco date to the Almohad dynasty. They were very good at pulling down all of the Almoravid mosques and things like that because they too had this religious fervour, but to put down the guys before them, they called them heretics and things like that. So if this heretic had built a mosque, well, you pull it down and you build your own um, in its place. And so the Almohads, we can go to Marrakesh and see the very famous Ketubia Mosque just off the main square of Marrakesh. We can go to Rabat and see this vast unfinished mosque, but the so-called Tower of Hassan is the minaret from this. Walls, gates, um, all sorts of things date to the Almohad period. After that, there's a, a couple of other smaller dynasties, the Marinid dynasty, which the main claim to fame for the Marinids was that they were in power really at the peak of the Moroccan architectural style, which has, you know, come to, you can't go anywhere in Morocco without seeing it. And that is that uh, the registers of the, the Zalige tiles at the bottom, the mosaic sort of tiles, and then as you move up the wall, you get to the carved stucco work, all beautiful, geometric, incredibly intricate stucco. As you move further up, you then get to the cedar wood of the roof beams and the, the joists of the roof. And then on top, you get the terracotta tiles. So those four registers, the Zalige tiles at the bottom, the carved stucco, the timber um, frame at the roof, and then the terracotta tiles on top is Moroccan architecture. And it came to its real fore in the Marinid period. And there's some beautiful madrasas or theological schools that date to the Marinid period. There's famous ones in Marrakesh, but the one that I love the most is in Meknes. You often have it to yourself. It's quite small, but it's just honestly the most stunning piece of architecture I've ever seen in its intricacy and, and level of craftsmanship. Following on from the Marinid dynasty were the Sahadins. And so now we're in the early 16th century into the mid 17th century. And they were a return to the, to the sort of the roots that Moulay Idris right back in the Idrisid dynasty had established in that they were Arab, Sarafian, so these are people that are connected to the family of the Prophet Muhammad directly. Again, you had, you know, whereas the, the Marinids were Berbers, here we are back with the Arab um, ruling family. They did a lot of good for Morocco. They resisted the Ottoman expansion, which was coming through North Africa at this stage. And in right at the end of the 16th century, they again tried to bring that trans-Saharan trade under their control and actually marched across the Saharan desert, capturing places like Timbuktu in 1591. 
And so that was bringing their whole, you know, that, that rich trade network under their control. But from the, the middle of the 17th century, we have the current dynasty, the Alawite dynasty. Now, quite different to the Alawites that you might hear of in Syria, the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, is an Alawite, but it, there's no connection between the Syrian version and the Moroccan version. It's just a similarity in the, the sound of the words. So as I say, Muhammad the, the sixth is the, um, the current king of Morocco. I hope I've got that right. I'm pretty sure I do. And he is of the Alawite dynasty. And so they were founded by, well, the, the second, the most famous sort of one of the founding fathers of the Alawite dynasty was Moulay Ishmael, who built Meknes, again, on ancient foundations, but rebuilt Meknes. But he has got a very colourful press from the Europeans. But yeah, those six main dynasties have characterised Islamic Morocco, the Idrisids, the Almoravids, the Almohads, the Marinids, the Sahadines, and finally the Alawites. So there's no test on that later, Stuart. Okay, thank you. Because I'll trouble. All right, so what's the bad press that Moulay Ishmael got from the Europeans? Tell us about him. Yeah, because um, it sort of goes back to Rabat. So Rabat is on the Atlantic Ocean, capital city of Morocco today, and the Bouregreg River comes into the Atlantic Ocean at that point. Rabat is a beautifully defensible position. It's got this amazing headland that is now the Kasbah-Udais that has always been a fortified uh, position going right back to the Almoravids, again, the Almohads, and then under the Almohads, the Rabat side was concentrated with the military and the political. On the other side of the river, uh, a new city was founded and Saleh was sort of the more mercantile side of things. But by the time you get to the Alawites in the 17th century, this is a period when in 1609, so right at the beginning of the 17th century, Philip III expelled all of the Islamic Moors from Spain. Many of them came down to Morocco, among other North African countries, but many of them settled in Saleh, which is on the other side of the Beauregard River from Rabat. You know, not having any love loss between themselves and the Christian powers to the north. They'd just been expelled from places where they'd been living for generations after generations. Plus, not having had a chance to really establish themselves in Morocco, they turn to piracy. And so these are the come down to us as the Corsairs, the Barbary pirates, or the, the Saleh rovers. Now, it was very convenient for a, a gentleman like Moulay Ishmael to use the, the Saleh rovers to his own ends. And so they preyed on shipping in the Mediterranean. They even went as far up as the uh, Black Sea in the east. And to the west, they got around the Iberian Peninsula and even raided coastal settlements in Cornwall, literally dragging people off. The main thing was to get slaves. Now, Moulay Ishmael had a great use of slaves because in Meknes, he was building a vast city there and he needed a workforce for it. And so he basically allowed the Corsairs to continue their trade 
and used the Christian slaves to build his cities, many thousands and thousands of them. Now, if anyone's interested in this, there's a, it's been out for a little while now, but it's a great book called White Gold by Giles Milton. And it really tracks the story of one English slave, Thomas Pello, as he's taken, you know, by the um, Sali Rovers, transported across land to Meknes, is put to work. But he must have been a, an individual of some resourcefulness because he sort of rose up through the ranks. And it's through counts of people like Pello, as well as ambassadors who were there, that we get a picture of Mullah Ishmael being a very dictatorial and cruel individual. As always in history, we take this with a huge grain of salt, with no gold added, of course. But, uh, you know, because, of course, operating against Christian kingdoms, and, of course, they're going to give him a bad press. One of the famous stories is that, you know, he would have a slave holding the stirrup of his horse when he mounted and as he mounted, he, he took delight in drawing his sword and slicing off the slave's head as he mounted. You know, now, whether this ever occurred or not, I've got no idea. But this is the press that's come back to us. But he's credited for really establishing Moroccan independence. Up until this time, the Portuguese and Spanish had established these enclaves in Morocco itself. And it was Moulay Ishmael who expelled the Europeans from Moroccan soil. So he's, he's seen, depending on which side of the fence you're on, two very different ways. But there's no two ways about it. These Christians, you can still go to Meknes and go to the so-called prisons where these slaves were kept and read Pello's accounts in white gold. It certainly wasn't luxury living. Most of the walls, and there were kilometres upon kilometres of them in Meknes, were rammed earth or adobe walls. And so obtaining the clay, mixing it, moving it up the scaffolding, tamping it down would have been backbreaking work. And um, literally thousands of Christian slaves died in those endeavours. So, you know... A little grain of truth on either side, I suppose, but certainly not black and white. Is there still visible influence or signs of the Berbers? Do they still exist in Morocco? Absolutely. So when you, it, it's still very, very interesting. So the Berbers are just, the, you know, the pre-Islamic, pre-Roman population of that part of the world and stretching right across into very Western Egypt, for instance. But the people of Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Libya and Morocco. Now, when you go to Morocco, people identify I'm Berber or I'm Arab. So with the Islamic conquest, what happened was you had the military sort of acquire land and then the word would go back to the Saudi Peninsula and it was like, there's land here, guys, just come and grab it. And so whole tribes would move, you know, from the Hejaz coast, you know, where Mecca and Medina are today, across to Morocco. So a group of 100-odd people or so would move across and take up land in these newly conquered territories. And so you had a, a big Arab population there over time, as well as 
the Berbers. And so people still identify that their family is ultimately Berber or ultimately Arab. Generally, now the, the Berbers are more in the, the mountainous areas because the Arabs, being a more mercantile people, sort of settled on the, the coastal plain and that's where the cities are. Or if they weren't there, they were over the mountains to the south where you have this feature which is absolutely delightful in Morocco, these so-called palmeries. So you've got the Atlas Mountains, very high mountains, and then out of those mountains are these river systems that flow to the south. Many of them just end up petering out in the Sahara Desert somewhere, but where there's still a, a decent flow of water, incredible gardens and oases have been formed using navigation. And so, again, that's another strong point for the Arab communities. So in that sort of southern area, south of the, the Atlas Mountains, is a large number of Arab people. And in the north, on the coastal plain, but when you're up in the Atlas Mountains or in the middle Atlas Mountains, that's still very much the preserve of the Berber. So, Ben, where does the French influence in Morocco come from? So, as you know from your viewing of Casablanca, the French controlled Morocco up until the, the 1950s. During the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, it was a, a French protectorate. It wasn't colony or anything like that. So Algeria was more of a, a colony, a part of France, than Morocco ever was. But they certainly had a lot of influence in Morocco and the the most palpable influence that you see is that they always built these new cities sort of next to the old Medinas, which was good in the sense that they left the Medina or the, the old city centre exist, as it's always been, but then they would build their new city with big boulevards and tree-lined streets and things like that next door. And so often when you're visiting these cities, you're staying in the new part of town because that's where the hotels are and then sort of immersing yourself in the old part of town during the day with the Second World War and that there was more and more agitation for Moroccan independence. And as I was saying, that um, was realised in the 1950s when Morocco gained its independence from... Well, the, it, it didn't gain its independence from France, but the French withdrew, protectorate came to an end. So today, Morocco, it's a constitutional monarchy? It is. They've got houses of parliament, but the king still has considerable powers. I'm not a constitutional expert when it comes to Moroccan politics, and I'll stand corrected, but king has large powers over the parliament. And it's interesting. It's something I've always pondered on, but the, the two countries that really sailed through the Arab Spring without too much problems were Morocco and Jordan. And the common denominator is the monarchy in both of those countries, whereas, you know, Syria, Algeria, all the rest, it's uh, a president. And I think people were, you know, just psychologically more emboldened to go against a president than a monarchy that still has that aura around it. And so, in my personal opinion, attribute the, the monarchy in, in Morocco to, you know, helping them get through the Arab Spring. Now, having said that, it is a fairly enlightened monarchy as well. 
you know, they're certainly not despotic or extravagant, to the best of my knowledge. And the people there generally are quite happy with their monarch, I think. And is it more of a modern Western country than rather than a strict Islamic country? No, it's still definitely Islamic, but things like Ramadan are as observed as much in Morocco as anywhere else. You know, certainly in terms of dress and things like that, it certainly hasn't got the don't see people in vowels or anything like that, you know, but it's definitely an Islamic country and they're very proud of that. And outwardly, in most things, it's, it is it is a little bit more European, I suppose, you know, when you're in places like Casablanca or Rabat than some other cities sort of like Cairo and places like that that are more through and through Islamic, whereas Morocco does tread that fine line between being an Islamic country, but also on the doorsteps of Europe. And I've got to ask the question of the four great cities you've talked about. Do you have a favourite? I do, Stuart, and it does depend on what I'm doing. As a tourist, just wanting to experience the sights and sounds, it's definitely Fez. I've been fortunate to get to quite a few big oriental souk or market towns in the Middle East, across North Africa. And Fez definitely ticks all of the boxes. It's chaotic. It's in a quite a a narrow V-shaped river valley. And so very disorientating. It's very much a working city with people moving bags of rope and various things around. And so as a as a tourist, just to, you know, have that sort of oriental experience, personally, I put Fez above Marrakesh. Marrakesh is flat. It's more touristed. It's still absolutely fascinating, but I like the slightly grimy hustle and bustle of Fez over, over Marrakesh, and that's just a personal opinion. However, if I was living in Morocco and looking for somewhere to retire, it would most definitely be Rabat. Just, you know, you buy the ocean. It's a a very pleasant town, I think, Uh, Rabat. I wouldn't want to live permanently somewhere like Fez, but uh, Rabat would be where I'd like to retire to. Meknes is historically interesting, but really generally unremarkable. You know, it's worth a visit, but pales in comparison to, say, Fez or Marrakesh. And as I say, Marrakesh is too many well-heeled Europeans there and it's still a, a lovely place, but Fez is, is my pick of the lot as a tourist. Ben, thank you so very, very much. A fascinating insight into, as I said, a very exotic country that most people have a desire to go to sooner than later. You're welcome, Stuart. I've been lucky enough to go there on several occasions and every time there's something new that uh, gets my interest and not the least just getting my head around the history of the place, which is, I, you know, I understand a little bit foreign to most people. It's not something we learn in school. And so it's been a joy to me to get to know Morocco, one that I've enjoyed immensely. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller. Brought to you by Academy Travel, a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or join our online program of lectures and short courses 
brought to you by experts around the world.